We are in this season of Advent now, which is everybody excited? Yeah, yeah amen. It's going to be good. Do you know, one of the things I was lucky enough to be in Israel and, and visited the supposedly birthplace of Jesus, you know, for that, and it, it was phenomenal just to get a sense of the topography of where he would have went. And there's so many gems in the Christmas story. Christmas story is not a cute story to be told on a winter's night by a fireside. This Christmas story is a story of signs and wonders and angelic declaration. It is a sign where hope came into the world. And the reason I've entitled this Advent series is uh, called Christmas Changes Everything is because it does. It does. And we need to remind ourselves that that was the beginning of everything changing in our world. It's because, you know, Christmas and the Christmas message is so amazing and so relevant because it actually points to the solutions of many of the problems that we face in our world today. We live in a world that's fraught with worry. And when you look at the Christmas story, it actually helps us to position ourselves to go against the flow of all the cultural pressures that you'll come across. The Christmas story contains the repeated message to people like Zacharias, Mary, Joseph, and the shepherds. And the message is, fear not. Fear not. And the reason being was they were about to come into an encounter, an encounter of something so significant that not only would it change their lives, but it would change the lives of everyone round about them and subsequent generations after that. And yet, the enemy tried to thwart that. And that's why they were told also to fear not. You know, next year, I believe, we as a church are going to encounter changes. I just know change is happening. I can feel it brewing. I know it's actually coming. And I believe that God would say to us this Christmas season, this Advent season, Vineyard, fear not. Fear not for what's about to happen. And in this Christmas story, I want us to look at the truths that will enable us to combat fear. You know, truths that, you know, actually attract the attention of heaven to us. We live in an uncertain world where fear is having a major effect on the mental health and well-being of our society. We fear the alien. We fear having a different opinion from other people and kind of standing out. We fear, fear failure. We fear what's happening with the climate. And sometimes we even fear, you know, not being politically correct enough. You know, saying something that may upset someone, you know what? That is eroding freedom of speech. And we were never meant to be prisoners of speech. We were meant to have freedom of speech. But the biggest fear that I see most people struggling with today is the fear of man. In fact, Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25 says this, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe, is safe. So today, if you've got your Bibles, could you turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter one. And what we're going to look at is the angel appearing to a guy called Joseph, and we're going to talk about how to overcome our fear of what people might think of us this Christmas season. Because the reality is, you know, at one level or another, all of us are affected or concerned maybe of what other people's opinions of us are. Do you ever hear someone say, do I look fat in this? Do I? <laughs> they, they, they're like, well, don't know what to say here. <laughs> or, or it could be, does my boss value me? Does my boss actually value all that hard work that I do? Do you like my outfit? 
Do you know, uh, what, what do people think of me? That's another one. Do, do I fit in with this crowd, you know? Or do you like my Instagram selfie? That's another one. And we can so easily become obsessed with what other people actually think about us. And in this week's story, in this week's message, we're going to watch Joseph battle with the opinions of people when he actually has to decide between doing what is easy and doing what is right. Between what people would expect him to do and between what God actually wants him to do. And so let me give you the context of the story. And then we're going to dive right in. Joseph and Mary, nobody knows the age of Joseph, okay? I like to think of them as two teenagers. We know Mary was a teenager. Joseph, you know, could have been a teenager. He could have been about 18 years of old. We know he was older than Mary. Uh, Catholics would believe that Joseph was a lot older. And they take that from the presupposition that Mary was always a virgin. And the only way, because we know that Jesus had brothers and sisters, was that Joseph must have been married before. So therefore, that's he's adopted. So that's the kind of Catholic viewpoint. But I think they were both kind of young teenagers, you know, just starting off in life. But no one knows for sure. Now, at this time in history, engagements were a lot different from what they are today. Today, if you're engaged and things kind of go wrong, well, you can break off the engagement. But during the time of the first century, an engagement was actually a culturally legal binding agreement. You'd be engaged for, say, about a year. And in that time, if you wanted to break off that engagement, you actually had to file for divorce. That's how serious it was. Do you know? So the only way to get an engagement during that time would be to either get divorced or someone had to die. Someone would maybe die. And the engagement was so serious that if one of those two people actually did die, the other one would be considered a widow or a widower. So this was how serious and binding an engagement was in those days. And with that in mind, we pick up the story at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, I want us to pause just for a minute. I want us to try and picture yourself as Joseph here. Think of Joseph as a minute. It must have led to an awkward conversation. Eh? It must have been an awkward one. Mary sits down her fiancé and says, Hey, Joey, honey bunches, got something to tell you. Uh, yeah, I'm pregnant. But, but don't go jump into conclusions, Joey. Just, just, the good news is, it's by the Holy Spirit, Joseph. Do you know, isn't that great? Now, if you're like Joseph, do you know, I'd be like, how long did it take you to make up, you know, this story? Come on. Don't give me that Holy Spirit stuff. I mean, I saw the way that guy was checking you out and you went to draw water at the well last week. Do you know, I know what's going on here. And from a human perspective, if you factor out the God possibility, Joe's basically got two options here. He's probably thinking, do you know, this girl's either crazy or she's a liar. And I don't want to marry someone who's crazy or or a liar. She says, I'm pregnant with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did it to me. And Joseph at some point is thinking, come on, seriously? And he must have been thinking, you know, okay, if I stay with this girl, what's everybody going to say? What are they going to think about us? Because from her perspective, well, she's tarnished already, okay? This was a sin in that time in history, to be pregnant out of wedlock. It was actually punishable. They'd actually uh, taken away some of the punishment because you used to be able to be burned to death for that. Now they just stone you to death. So they did. And from his perspective, he's tarnished for the rest of his life. 
I mean, if he's the only guy, do you know, if he's the guy that actually got her pregnant, or she got pregnant by someone else, then from that point on, fingers were going to wag, and tongues were going to, you know, wag as well. They'd be pointing at them, there's that couple. And if he divorces her now, no other father is going to allow him to wed their daughter. Do you know, he might even find it difficult for someone to employ him, you know, with his joinery building skills. But what we do know is, well, let me say this, we don't know the state of Joseph's mind at this point, but what we do know is that he decides to bail on the relationship. So in verse 19, it says this, but because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So he's jumping out the relationship here. Now, a lot of commentaries that I read, you know, researching this, said that divorcing her quietly was actually a very noble and honoring thing for Joseph to do in that day. It would have been very unusual for someone to do that. And he's probably thinking, you know, I'm not going to expose her, you know, to public shame here and say to everybody, you know, she cheated on me, you know, stoned her to death, you know. He probably actually really loves her. He's probably really in love with her and he cares about her and he thinks, you know, maybe she can go and have this baby somewhere quietly. Hopefully she can start over again and I'll start over again and then we'll just move on with our lives. And he's about to learn one of the most important lessons for those who want to honor God. You ready for it? No, a couple. Well, yes, good. He's going to learn this, that pleasing God often means disappointing people. Yeah, there's something, eh? He's going to learn how the powerful truth is that if you want to obey God, there will be times in your life where other people will not agree with you and they will not understand because pleasing God often means disappointing other people. And here's how the story continues. Here's how it goes down. But after Joseph had considered this, in other words, He's thinking this through. He's thinking the pros and he's thinking the cons. And the cons of staying with her probably outweigh the pros here. After he considered all this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, my, the King James Version actually says, fear not. My version says, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And look at verse 21. It's so powerful. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. When he awakens from this dream, you've got to imagine the pendulum swing of his emotions that they're going through from one side to the other side. For centuries, you'll be thinking, it's been prophesied that a Messiah would come. And I've just dreamt of an angel of the Lord actually telling me that I've got a part to play in this greatest event that's going to happen in all of history. And then at the same time, his emotions maybe swing to the other end of the pendulum and going, oh my gosh, what if it was just that bagel I ate last night and it's a bad dream? What if it was that? And what are people going to say about me? And what is this going to cost me? And on the one hand, I get to possibly be part of something that will actually change the whole world. But on the other well, I have no idea how difficult, do you know, this is going to be for me. Everyone else around me is going to say, ditch her, get rid of her. Don't marry this girl who sinned and should be put to death. So on the one hand, should I do what God actually wants me to do? Or on the other hand, should I do what people want? 
And I can promise you guys, if you're a follower of Jesus, at various times in your life, you will be confronted with the choice to either obey God or disobey God and do something easier to win the approval of people. And Joseph is about to face these choices and learn a really important lesson. And the first lesson that's really important is massive for our lives because it's this, becoming obsessed with what people think about you is the quickest way to forget what God thinks about you. Why does that matter so much? Why does it matter so much? You see, when we understand what God thinks of us, we realize our kingdom identity. And our kingdom identity allows you to exercise a thing called kingdom authority. And kingdom authority is what actually realizes kingdom breakthroughs, heaven invading earth, miracle signs and wonders, the gospel proliferating everywhere. And if you knew who God created you to be, you could, or you fill in the blanks. Think about what he says, you know, in his words. But the reality is that for most of us, we drift towards wanting to please people. Don't say anything that's not politically correct in our culture. And whatever you do, don't speak about pro-life issues, for goodness sake. Don't talk about rocking the boat, talking about sexuality in any shape or form. And you see too many Christians are far too concerned with, do you think I'm doing the right thing here? Do you like me? Can you know, I fit in here? Will you be offended by what I say? Shh so I won't say anything. <laughs> it's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. Do you know, sometimes some people need to stand up and say, you know what, this is the truth. Because not speaking the truth is probably why we're in such a state in society and in the world today. There's been so many compromises. The more we move away from a Christian Judeo ethic, the worse society actually becomes. And the statistics are out there to prove it. And suddenly, without even meaning to, if we don't address the truth, we surrender our lives to the opinions of people at the expense of actually living to please God. So how do we overcome that? What's the solutions to that? Well, I think the flip side, you know, is true, you know, as well. Because becoming focused, I would even say becoming obsessed with what God thinks about you is the quickest way to forget what people think about you. Living before an audience of one. That's what I try to live my life as, living before an audience of one. In other words, God, I want to please you with all that I do. That's the quickest and the best and perhaps the only way to grow past living from the approval of others. And here's the bottom line. When you think about it, you can't please everyone. Anyone ever tried to do that? And you find that you, you, once you please this bunch here, you've upset that bunch there. You just can't actually do it. You can't please everybody all the time, but the good news is, is you can please God. You can please Him. You can live a life where God looks at you and says, you did good there. Do you know you did a the right thing there? You brought glory to my name in that instance there. So to overcome living for what everyone else thinks, it's actually not that complicated. We just need to surrender ourselves to living before an audience of one. And Joseph had to get to that place in his life where he says, you know what? I value the opinion of God above the opinion of people. And I'm not going to stop marrying this girl. Now, how does this play out in our everyday lives? Well, I've got two big thoughts for you to take away, okay, and apply to your life. 
And I've put it under the subtitle of how do we live for God instead of for people? And let me give you two thoughts to take away today. Firstly, if you're not ready to be criticized for your obedience to God, then you're probably not ready to be used by God. It's a maturity lesson 101 discipleship. Think about all the different ways that Joseph and Mary would have been criticized in this. I mean, they would have been publicly disgraced again and again. People would whisper about them. Do you know that's not really Joseph's baby, actually? That Mary, I'm Mary. That Mary's a loose woman. She's a bit of a girl, actually. Or that Joe, he's a dirty dog, I'm telling you. I, he said he was just visiting his fiancée. We know what he was up to. The tongues would have been wagging and the fingers would have been pointing. And I don't know how it will play out in maybe your life, but there's going to be a time when you're reading God's Word and God's Word tells you to do something that's culturally unpopular, and if you obey it, you're going to be criticized. You may be a student and you're breaking free of the whole party lifestyle. And all your party friends are like, what are you doing? Are you one of those religious Bible thumpers? Anyone ever had that to them? I did as well. Uh, as well. And I wasn't even in college. <laughs> or you might say, you know what? No matter what I did in the past, from now on I'm going to honor God with sexual purity. And people are like, what? You're going to do what? Come on. Or you may be in a place where you're actually leaving maybe a high, you know, paying job to go to a lower paying job because you felt that God was calling you to do something with your life that would contribute and change the workplace in there. And everybody's like, why would you do that? You know, I mean, surely life's all about money, right? That, don't be stupid. Don't be an idiot. Don't give up your job to do that. That was said to me when I left engineering to become a pastor. And I could list a hundred scenarios where saying yes to God is going to bring criticism. Do you know, I teach church planners and leaders this. If you want to make a difference in the world, you will endure more pain than those who don't. You will. But if you want to live a life where nobody criticizes you, let me tell you what you do. Do nothing. Stand for nothing. And achieve nothing that has any eternal significance. Living for God... I get to choose the bullets that people fire at me. So I do. That's the bonus. I would rather do something significant and have people shoot bullets at me than do nothing. Everything I've ever done that's significant in my life or that we've done together as a church community for God has met with spiritual as well as human resistance and criticism. I mean, it's crazy. I can tell you story after story from my personal life. When we came and set up this church 23 years ago, do you know, I met with some of the pastors in this area and they said to me, why do, you wanna, why do we need another church in this area? We've been here for ages. We, why do we need another church? And what kind of church are you going to? They got me into a room and then they kind of, I thought it was they were interviewing me, to be quite honest. I just wanted to have a cup of tea with them and be pals. <laughs> do you know, and they got me in a room and they said, well, tell us your vision, Jamie. I said, well, we're coming here really because, you know, and I don't mean this offensively, but you don't have any young people in your church. And I see all these 18 to 30 odd year olds walking about the streets, going to university, and they're not in a church. And so we want to come and make a difference. And we want to come and help with what you guys are doing. We value you. We honor you. And well, tell us your vision. Well, we're going to go and reach that 18 to 30 odd age group. That'll be our initial, do you know, outreach. And what's going to happen is we're going to you know, they're going to come, some of them will get saved, 
Do you know, uh, they'll stick with us maybe one year, maybe four years. Some of them will fall in love. Do you know, we'll do their weddings. We'll dedicate their babies. How many of you guys were students here with us? Could you stick up your hand just to see? You were a student. What are you hiding for there? <laughs> so there was a number. And when we think about it, it's hundreds and hundreds of people went through this church like that. And they said to me, well, that's a bit naive. You won't be able to build your church with students. Like, yeah. And uh, they're like, catch, Jamie. They'll just want stroked and then they'll leave you. And what they were saying by that was you won't get their tithe. <laughs> That's what they were meaning by that. I said, well, guys, I know in the other thing they said it won't last. That was 23 years ago. Okay. I said, well, guys, one, you know, thank you for your contribution. Uh, I said, but one, I'm not here to build my church. We're built here to build his church. And I said, with students, I think I can change the world with them. Because if I invest in them, and they get that closer to Jesus. And yeah, they'll leave. And some of them will go in and they keep going with the kingdom forward. I said, the kingdom has come. The kingdom will extend and it will change. I said, so I believe him. That was the first phase of it. And do you know what? We're still here. And do you know what? None of them are. I'm the longest serving pastor in the whole of the West End of Glasgow. There you go. So anything significant you want to do will be met with criticism and resistance. So we need to get used to it. And if you're not ready to be <coughs> criticized for your obedience to God, then you're not ready to be used by God. It's not that he won't use you. It's just you're not ready for it. Do you know, here's my thought number two, okay? Extraordinary acts of God often start with ordinary acts of obedience. So it does. Extraordinary acts of God often start with ordinary acts of obedience. Think about this. The savior of the world was born when two teenage kids said their yes to God in a simple act of obedience. That's so encouraging to me. You've no idea what you might set in motion with one simple obedient yes towards God. And so the angel speaks to Joseph and says, fear not, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what is in her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. You will give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus because he will save people from their sins. Now, Joe's got this choice to make. Does he do what's easy or does he do what's right? Does he do what people would want him to do or does he do what God wants him to do? So in one little verse, we see the decision. So here's Joseph's response, verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home to be his wife. And through that one simple act of obedience, the greatest act of God in human history was brought into fulfillment. And that's the reason why you and I are here today talking about Christmas. And it took courage. And courage grabs heaven's attention. Remember last week I said, you know what? What courage is? Courage isn't the absence of fear. Courage is fear that said its prayers. Let me say that again. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is fear that said its prayers. Let me illustrate courage from a bizarre story of a guy called Jonathan, who was the son of Saul, and his mate, who was an armor bearer. The armor bearer would just carry his sword and his spear and then hand it to Jonathan as he was the warrior and did the battle. Jonathan and the armor-bearer are out one day for a walk. They look across this glen, and they see on top of the hill the Philistine army. It's actually a garrison. The army's kind of further on. 
Jonathan's feeling pretty good about things, looks over, turns to his armor bearer and says, see those guys over there? I think we can take them. And the armor bearer goes, yeah, let's have a go. So we'll pick it up at 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 6. And it says this. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison and of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you according to your heart. Then Jonathan said, very well, let us cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say thus to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say thus, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and this will be a sign to us. Now, these guys, you know, Garrison's 20 men, so these guys are outnumbered 10 to 1. Okay, 10 to 1. By showing themselves, they have just lost the military advantage, i.e. what we call the element of surprise. Secondly, I don't know about you, but this isn't a good sign for me. Do you know, if they say, right, come ahead. <laughs> it's not a good sign. Do you know, I, I like bigger signs. I like bigger ones. I like, I was reading George Muller today. George Muller was a phenomenal guy that started orphanages all across the United Kingdom and never had a penny to his name. Do you know, at the time, he was always praying and the money would come. Thousands and thousands. In fact, one kid came up to him and said, George, I've got a penny here. I found a penny for the orphanage. And George was like, oh, thousands are going to come after that. And it did. He lived by faith. I like big signs like that and checks uh, over a thousand pounds. That would have been good. But he says this, this will be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden. Then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you something. <laughs> Can you remember being in first year? I grew up in the south side of Glasgow. It was a rough school, you know. Uh, and when you're a first-year kid and a third-year kid says to you, come on over here to us. We're going to show you something. You knew it was coming next, you know, like that, right across the back of the head, so it was. So this is the scenario here. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. Now, Israel's only two people at this time. Okay, it's not like he's get back up here. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him. Again, think about this for a moment. Come up here means the enemy is on an elevated position and Jonathan and the armor bearer are not. What is the second military advantage that they've just given up that Jonathan doesn't have here? It's called position and elevation. So the story describes it like this. They're crawling up this hillside they're on their hands and their knees. Not a good fighting position if you're going to fight 10 to 1 here by any stretch of the imagination. And then at verse 13, it says this. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him. And they, and they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. Bizarre. They get to the top of the hill. Something supernatural happens. Jonathan stands up and the enemy army falls down. 
And the armor bearer gets so excited, he doesn't even give Jonathan the sword. He's just going around stabbing people, you know, like that. I mean, it's the most bizarre kind of picture here. And then look at what happens in verse 15. And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and the raiders also trembled, and the earth quaked, so that it was a very great trembling. I love that verse. I highlighted it in my Bible. I said, a whole lot of shaking going on here. The whole thing is shaking. The whole world is shaking. And the rest of the story is like a domino effect where the whole Philistine army is rooted. Guys that were on the Philistines, Israelites that were on the Philistine side and Israelites that were hiding, you know, all come together. The Israelites are united and they defeat the, the uh, Philistines. And I want you to see this effect of courage because that's what it was. This happened because of courage. This, I believe, guys, is an invitation to us for courage. The Lord is looking for a people that will stand under the anointing that in the moment of opposition is actually available to every single one of us. It's a supernatural, it's almost like he puts a supernatural blanket of courage around us. It's a realm of supernatural courage that causes every single realm of darkness that we will encounter to tremble before you until the earth itself responds to what's actually within you. The Holy Spirit wanting to come and infect every atmosphere. When the Spirit of the Lord was released, also in Acts chapter 4, there's a similar situation to what we just read in 1 Samuel chapter 14. There's two guys, Peter and John. They've been persecuted. They've been imprisoned. They've been beaten because they healed someone. That was their crime. And when Peter gets out of prison, the first place that he went to was a prayer meeting. And then he prayed this prayer. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servant that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Why was Peter, do you know, and John imprisoned? Because of a miracle. And it upset all the religious people of the day. They got criticism and they got opposition and they got imprisoned for it. But they were bold. They were bold and they obeyed Jesus' commission to go forth and heal the sick. What did he pray for whenever he got out of you know, prison? Uh, we'll have some more of that boldness, please, Lord. That's what I want. Why should that be any different from us? He's saying, God, you know the stuff that actually got us into trouble and got us into prison? We're going to increase that, please. Please increase that. Instead of watering down the gospel, we need to raise the level of our experience to the standards of the scripture so that people have to adjust themselves to actually hear what we're saying. This requires a boldness and a militancy, guys, that the Christian lion should not act like a tabby cat anymore. It's time for the lion to roar again. In the very next verse, in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, it says, The Spirit of God came upon the church, and the house that they were meeting in began to shake. They prayed for boldness, and the earth shook. <laughs> Guys, the earth is longing for that boldness to return again. Water is waiting to be walked on again. Have you ever thought about that? The whole of creation is groaning and travailing for you and me to take our place in this kingdom and to live out the identity that he's given us. Do you know, we may never, and hopefully we are never, invaded by a foreign power and persecuted for our faith, just like they did in first century Palestine. We might never be sent to jail for preaching, you know, God's words, although 
that's looking more like a reality, you know, every year. But I guarantee you that we will find ourselves in situations like Joseph and Mary, where pleasing God often means disappointing people. And the fear of man will be a present-day reality, challenging you not to please God. And that same courage that was actually available to Jonathan and his armor-bearer, that was available to Peter and John, that was available to two scared teenagers, you know, Mary and Joseph, will be available to you. And when you are in a situation like that, I want you to remember Christmas. I want you to remember the Christmas story. I want you to remember what we talked about today. So let me summarize. Pleasing God often means disappointing people. But becoming obsessed with what God thinks about you is the quickest way to forget what people think about you. And if you're not ready to be criticized, you know, for your obedience to God, then you're probably not ready to be used by God. But here's the good news. Extraordinary acts of God often starts with just ordinary acts of obedience and courage. Courage attracts heaven's attention and it shakes that which would set itself up against God's purposes. Fear not. Fear not. Why don't we stand?